We're still in Colossians. We're actually just barely beginning Colossians. Uh, our series uh, in Colossians is called um, the supremacy, the sufficient, yeah, supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. I will get this one of these days. We are in verses three through eight. Hear now God's word. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and because of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would send the same Spirit who inspired this word to open our hearts to its truth. Please remove from us apathy, cynicism, callousness, or rebellion, that we may really be hungry for this bread of life that feeds our souls, nourishes our hearts for your work, and fills us with the joy that is our strength. We ask this for the honor and glory of your dear Son and our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. It was one of those unexpected things. It was a Sunday morning a long time ago. We had finished the worship service, and uh, we had fellowship for a while, talking, and people were starting to, to file out of our little church building in Winter Haven, Florida. And suddenly, this couple came in, this rather young couple, and it was obviously rather odd. Everyone's leaving, and they're coming. So I introduced myself to them and asked how I could help them, and they said, well, we're possibly thinking about, you know, well, we're getting married, and we're wondering if maybe this would be a good place to get married. We're looking for a small chapel in which to do this. And so, uh, you know, we sat down privately and began to talk about some things, and uh, one of the things that became apparent in the course of this discussion was that they felt the need to get married, if you understand what I'm saying. Uh, and so I asked them a very simple question. <coughs> Are you Christians? To which they answered yes. And I wisely, through the Spirit, asked a follow-up question. What's a Christian? And so they told me that they thought a Christian was someone who was a, you know, tried to be a good person. I said, well... Let's talk about that. So the course of the discussion is I explained the, the gospel of uh, the fact that Jesus came to save sinners and how he came to save sinners. It was a very brief discussion, and yet at the end of that discussion, God had so moved that they wanted to profess faith in Christ. And so this young couple that came into the church looking for a place to get married found a Savior. <coughs> 
And they found someone who, for a short time anyway, would be their pastor and would be the one who officiated their wedding. They didn't stay at the church long. They gave in to fear and shame because they knew that everyone would notice that her belly was getting big earlier than anticipated. And so they moved on to another church. I would bump into them periodically, see how they're doing, making sure that they're still going to a church, still hearing uh, the Bible and its truth. And they still were. The, the gospel had borne fruit in their lives. And that's what Paul really wants them, the Colossians here, to understand, that they have believed a fruit-bearing gospel. The big idea this morning is that Christ works through the gospel to bear much fruit. It's rather simple. We'll see how this works. First off, the gospel of Christ produces fruit in people who believe. We learn where this church came from. Ultimately, it comes from Christ working through the gospel. But we see that the gospel is bearing fruit and is growing. The the picture that Paul and Timothy use here as they describe what's happening is as if the gospel is alive. It's as if the gospel has this life-producing power. It's like a tree that is just bearing forth fruit. This would not be the tree that Amy and I had in Florida that bore no fruit. Okay, But there's a power within it, which is why Paul says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And so Paul is saying here that it bears fruit like a tree. It produces fruit a rich crop of something, and the main thing it produces is Christians. It produced Christians in Colossae, and he reminds them that it produces, produced Christians all over the world. Now, he didn't mean that it was already producing fruit in South America, or North America, or the Caribbean, the known world. He's it's kind of an expansive word, but not, let's not take him literally to mean that there's some way in Antarctica at that point in time who was, there was bearing fruit in. The known world of Paul and his people, that it expanded. It was not just about this one little city in the province of Asia, but that God was at work in all kinds of places that these people had not even dreamed about yet. It got there to Colossae because of Epaphras. Epaphras. Most likely he was converted while Paul was preaching in Ephesus for three years, came to be a disciple under Paul, and we imagine brought the gospel back home to Colossae. He didn't just hear the gospel and believe the gospel, but he became a messenger of the gospel and began to preach it to other places. And so we see this chain of, first, there's Jesus, who speaks to Paul through through this vision on the road to Damascus, who reveals the gospel to him. Paul, then in his very many uh, missionary journeys, preaches not only to the people in Ephesus, but one of them is this man, Epaphras, who then, who believes this gospel just as Paul did, brings it to the people of Colossae, and the question is, who's next? 
To whom shall they tell this message of what Christ has done to save sinners? And so, imagine for a moment there's this big gap between 60 AD and now. You, of all the people who have heard it between then and now, you have also heard it. And so there's, again, that question, who's next? Sometimes God just drops people in our lap, just like God dropped that couple in my lap that Sunday afternoon. Karen has, has experienced this as God dropped her neighbor into her lap. It was just sort of, she comes up and says, I want to study the Bible with you. Doesn't even understand what it is that she's asking for, but she, but they begin to study the Bible and she sees that there is a Jesus who saves sinners and that she's one of those sinners and she wants to be saved. Sometimes we don't have to go knocking on doors. Sometimes God brings them right to us. Sometimes he sends people, just like he sent Epaphras. And so Paul says that they heard it and understood it. This has the implication that Epaphras explained what Christ did. He explained what it means. When, when I met with that couple and they didn't really have a clear understanding of what Christianity was, I began to explain the reality of Christ and His obedience on our behalf. That, that He perfectly obeyed the law for us because we had disobeyed. I, I began to explain briefly how Jesus died upon the cross bearing the sin that we had committed so that God can pardon us of that sin and also declare us righteous because of the, the obedience of Jesus so that now we're in a right relationship with Him. That's what Epaphras did. Explained it. Helped them to understand it. And then when they understood it, they believed it. So part of what Paul is saying here is that the gospel didn't just come to them. Um, this is one of those places where I'm not really excited about what the ESV does. Because it says uh, that it, uh, which has come to you, because the idea there is more that is present among you. Okay, He's got to say some hard things later on in this letter. There's some things that might lead them to perhaps think that they, they didn't have the gospel because, in fact, there were false teachers who had come among them and convinced them that they needed something besides Jesus. And what Paul is saying here, even in the beginning, is saying, you have it already. You have the gospel. It's bearing fruit among you. You don't need to add something else to this the message that Epaphras gave you is what you need. There's not anything else. And so he's gently sort of preparing the way for that to take place. Okay, so despite their issues, the gospel is to be understood as present among them. And he then says, I've heard about your faith in Christ. The gospel bears fruit through faith. And our faith, as Paul says, is to be in a specific person. Christ. The Messiah. Jesus. It is to be in Him. And Him alone. 
part of the problem that this young couple had was initially their faith was in themselves, in what they did. And that faith needed to shift away from themselves and to rest completely upon Jesus. Belief in a generic God will not save anyone. There is only one God, and He has revealed Himself in Jesus. Jesus must be the object of people's faith. One of the the books that (coughs) I read early on in my Christian experience was J.I. Packer's Knowing God. And one of the things he said there is he defines faith in this one sentence. And I thought it was so profound and important to me that I wrote it on the inside cover of my Bible that I no longer have because it fell apart. Faith. Self-abandoning trust in the person and work of Jesus. And so faith means I abandon myself. I abandon my reliance upon my own good works, upon my own IQ, however suspect that might be. Uh, I abandon it from all, you know, my, my trust in my privilege. Yeah, I'm an American, and I grew up in a great country. Whatever it is that I about me that, that I might find pride in, I was obeyed so that my faith might rest in Christ, His person, that He is the eternal Son of God, that He is uh, you know, one who took on human nature in the Incarnation, so He is one person who has two natures, that He really did die, that He really did rise again from the dead in the resurrection, that He really is seated at the right hand of God the Father, that I believe these things about His person, but also about His work, what He did, that His death was a death for me. It was not just like, well, He had the misfortune of dying, but He purposely died as the sin-bearer for God's people. And so faith moves away from self and looks to Him. And to Him alone. And so saving faith is relying on what Christ has done and what Christ promises to do. And so it's not about what I have done, good or bad, or what I'm going to do, good or bad. And so the Gospel bears fruit when we understand and believe what it declares about Jesus. Second part of this, is that the Gospel of Christ produces grateful, praying people. In a sense, faith is just the bud of the fruit that the Gospel produces in people. It's like, that's not it. There's so much more that He's going to be doing. That's the the first part of it. And again, it's Him doing it. And we'll talk about about that. But Paul starts off this this whole section here with this phrase, we always thank God. He and Timothy are always... Thanking God, that you, that word I mentioned last week uh, when we talked about the Eucharist, the Lord's table, it's Euchariseo. It's the verb form. Good grace. It says we have, we, we use good grace. We give thanks to God because of you. Because of His work among the Colossians through the Gospel. Now, All but two of Paul's letters include this section where he gives thanks to God for people. 
One of them is Galatians. You don't want to be the recipients of the letter to the Galatians because Paul really just forgets the good stuff and just goes in for the throat, in a sense, because their, their danger was so important that he couldn't waste time, so to speak, in getting to that. But Paul and Timothy were grateful for the, the, that the gospel had, had been applied to them and had borne fruit in them, not just in faith, but also in love. As Paul would later, uh, would, would say to the Galatians, actually earlier, he wrote it earlier, but in the late part of that letter, he says, neither circumcision or uncircumcision matter. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. And so, you know, real faith will express itself in love. And so Paul at this point is grateful for that. Which leads me to think. And I think of Ephesians 5. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in Paul, the gospel was bearing fruit and being thankful. It was a sign that Paul was filled with the Spirit as he wrote this because of his gratitude. Faith, love, gratitude, these are not the work of the flesh. They are the work of the Spirit. And so we recognize that all the good that someone does, that a fellow Christian does, it's all the, the product of God working through the gospel and the power of the Spirit to produce that. And so that's why Calvin, in talking about this verse, says that we do not congratulate people. Paul is not congratulating them, saying, Thank you, Laura. Man, you're just so full of faith and love. He thanks God that the people he's talking to are full of the love and the faith. I tried to model this to my children a little bit this past week because it was Amy's birthday, you know? And so, you know, you know we're, we're praying, and I thank God for the ways in which he has made my life. I thank God for her faithfulness, for her kindness, for her patience and gentleness. It's because God produced them in Amy. That's a work of the gospel in my, my wife's life. And so I'm not congratulating her on such a, being such a great person, but I'm so thankful to God that he has made her a great person and a great mom and a great wife. And so, and I, and I also kind of mentioned to my sons, my, my children, you see, in Proverbs 31, it talks about how the, the, the valiant wife, you know, her husband and children will stand up at the gate and call her blesses. That's what I'm doing. I want you to learn how to do that. I'm modeling that for you because I do it so poorly. Paul thanked God for these people. He recognized from places like Psalm 16, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. He would cheer when James wrote in, in chapter 1 of his letter, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
And so part of <coughs> the thankfulness comes when we believe by faith that indeed every good thing we have has come from the kind hand of our Father in heaven. <coughs> this does not mean that the Colossians were perfect in their faith, that they were perfect in their love. But Paul is thankful for the evidence of grace amongst them as a body of believers. The flesh, on the other hand, produces grumbling, complaining. And so when you're in one of those moments when you feel that urge to whine, moan, complain, Recognize it for what it is. It's, it's, the, it's the flesh kind of rising up within you. And, and see that as an opportunity to repent and say, Lord, I see the wickedness in my heart, and I need you to produce gratitude in me, thankfulness in me. Paul then says, he, is, he always thanks God when we pray for you. Apparently he prayed for them quite a bit since he heard about them. He'd never met them. And he's praying for them. That's what the gospel had produced in Paul. The gospel produces praying people. Why are they praying people? Well, it's largely because those people recognize they can't help themselves. They can't make themselves good. And not only that, but they can't make other people good. Paul he has just heard about the good things in this church, but he also heard about the bad things in this church. And he recognizes he can't fix the church, but he knows who can. Jesus. And so he prays that God would be at work to fix that church. I had one of those phone calls this week. Somebody was in distress. They were in a, in a, a really uh, bad state of mind. And, I, you know, I'm just thinking as I'm talking on the phone, give me wisdom. I don't know what to say to this person. I don't know what part of the gospel they need to hear, what, what part of who Jesus is that they need to, to hear about and rest in. And so, you know, I'm praying while I'm trying to talk and listen because I recognized my own inability to make it right, to make it better. Paul understood that far better than I do. And so he's praying. He's seeking grace from the Father, based upon the merit of the Son, His natural Son. You know, did you notice that? We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He kind of slips that in there. Just so, you know. He's our Father too, but He's our adopted Dad. Jesus holds a special place as the only begotten Son of the Father. And the Father worked through His Son, just as He will work through us. And so, grace teaches us gratitude and prayer in light of our dependence upon Jesus for every good thing. Third thing. The Gospel of Christ produces faithful, loving servants. Verses 
The gospel was bearing fruit, the fruit of love, in the lives of the Colossian Christians. I quoted from Galatians 5 earlier, and that's the thing. Paul didn't have to say that same thing to them. There's a sense in which they already got that, and that was good. But notice the logic of Paul in this. The love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Let's notice a couple things here, initially, before we get too far. Their faith is in Christ. Their love here is to the saints, the ones who are made holy by Christ. Their hope is in heaven. One of the roots of this self-giving love was their hope. For those of you who are wondering, yes, it's agape. And so it is that idea not of uh, you know brotherly love and family sort of affection. This is a this is a love that sacrifices. Like we heard about Charles Hodge this morning in Sunday school, the sacrifices for the well-being of the beloved. It's that kind of love. And the one of one of the roots of that love is hope. The gospel revealed to them that they had a hope that was stored up or laid up in heaven. In other words, they don't have all of the gospel promises fulfilled yet. There are still things that remain, things that will wait until they are in heaven. But I think it goes even beyond that. But for, you know, we, we're waiting. We await the redemption of our bodies. We await the freedom from the presence of sin in our lives. In Lamentations, <coughs> the reason we read, uh, Dick read that passage for us this morning is I wanted to get across the idea that our hope is not just in that stuff, but our hope ultimately is in God who brings that to pass. We discover in the Gospel that our hope is in Christ. And He is in heaven. That's really kind of what's going on here. But you know, since our hope isn't about this life, you know, it's not like your best life here. Okay? Our best life is awaiting us. Okay? Since our hope isn't about this life, we are free and we feel that freedom to give up ourselves and our stuff for the saints. So you see how that logic is, it begins to work now? It's because they have this hope that extends beyond this earthly existence, they no longer feel they have to guard their earthly existence. My life is no longer in my money, it's no longer in my house, it's no longer in my possessions, and so I can freely give them away to people who need them more than I might need them. If you don't have that eternal hope, then you're not going to be generous heart. That's the logic of Paul here. That's what's going on. And then if we can borrow, so to speak, to kind of just continue to make this point, 
We can borrow the logic of John in, in 1 John 3. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And so, in addition to hope, there is also love. The love of God for us that enables us, frees us to begin to love other people, recognizing He laid down His life for us. Now we're able to lay down our lives for other people. And that does not mean simply that you die for other people, but in the context, it's you see a brother in need, you try to meet that need as best as you're able. They need a meal, you, you, you give them a meal. They need clothes, you give them clothes. Loving the saints. And then we see something like 2 Corinthians 8. I want to add another one. God likes threes. <laughs> I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So he's talking, show your love is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty so you by his poverty might become rich paul points them to the reality of grace of what of how jesus impoverished himself to enrich them and what he's basically saying is and so you now can enrich others you corinthians because this is this is a section about the election for the the starving saints in Jerusalem because of the famine, that you can begin to enrich them because of your love. So since Jesus made himself poor to make us rich, we can impoverish ourselves to make others rich. How does this hope and love and all of this sort of work out? This is a, a radical sort of story. Um, one of those stories you don't want to find yourself in. There's a story of a mission trip to Patagonia from Liverpool, England in 1850. And there was a small group of, <clears throat> of men who went down to Patagonia. And if you don't know where Patagonia is, it's at the, the bottom of South America. So the climate, not exactly where I would choose to go. I like Arizona. Okay. And one of them was a retired Navy man. This is an issue, so to speak, of them sailing there. So they go to Patagonia, and they find the resistance to the gospel. They find that the, the climate is harsher even than life in Liverpool. And one of the things that happens is that the next supply ship never comes. Now they have food. They slowly begin to die off. And it is the words of the last member of this trip. Uh, Philip Reichen just encourages us to picture the man huddled up in the hull of his little boat, suffering from scurvy, and writing the following words as his last testament. This is the last thing we know that this man wrote. Um, Richard Williams was his name. Should anything prevent my ever adding to this, let my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy 
beyond all expression. The night I wrote these lines. I don't know, I said something I might uh, automatically think of as I'm dying of scurvy and who knows what else, uh, you know, starvation here in the middle of nowhere. And would not have exchanged situations with any living man. Let them also be assured that my hopes were full and blooming with immor uh, immortality, that heaven and love and Christ, which mean one and the same divine thing, were my soul. That the hope of glory filled my whole heart with joy and gladness, and that to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Here's a man who understood what this passage is talking about. His hope was so set in heaven that he was willing to empty himself and to endure these horrible things so that others might have life. And even if it didn't turn out the way he expected it, he still rejoiced for the hope that he had. We also see from the last part of this, because Epaphras uh, made known to Paul their love, and he says, in the Spirit. This kind of love only happens as the Spirit fills us and guides us. Your sinful nature, your flesh, is not going to lead you into love. It's going to lead you into selfishness. Corresponding recently with... Um, <coughs> The wife of a friend. She's a friend too. Amy and I were both corresponding with her. And um, she was some concerns that she had about this friend of ours and the selfishness that, that, that kind of was fought with getting in the way in their marriage and, and some other things. And asked me, you know, book recommendations, things like that. So, you know, we, we prayed for this guy. And it was funny, the book I recommended, he brought home that night to say, and said, honey, maybe we should read this together. And they went to a conference and they, they heard the word preached about a particular thing and it really struck to his heart and he began to repent in significant ways about some of the sins he knew were there already but he just, you know, wasn't ready to let go of yet. The Spirit at work to transform him, to move him out of his selfishness and into love. That's how it happens. It's not you going to go and I'm going to try better this week. But the Spirit, as we trust in Christ, begins to do this in us. The Spirit convicts us of our selfishness, moves us away from, towards self-sacrifice. If our faith is in Christ, our hope is in heaven, we will love the saints. And lastly, he mentions our beloved fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ. He points them back to Epaphras as a living example of the gospel bearing fruit in a man. Because remember, they don't know Paul, but they know Epaphras. And Paul is basically saying to them, he became this example because of faith in Christ, not through all of these rituals and rules and everything else that these false teachers are trying to get you to buy into. 
He became this godly man apart from that. There's a, a subtle, implicit sort of encouragement here. You have all that you need in the gospel to become a godly man like Epaphras. He was a man who was loved by Paul and Timothy, who viewed him as their fellow slave of Christ. He became one who was a willing slave. I, mean, I have no rights. Jesus can tell me to do anything He wants me to do. He became that way through the Gospel and the work of the Spirit. He was faithfully ministering to, the, to them on the behalf of Christ. And what the word here is that word we get deacon from. So He was a good deacon, so to speak. He didn't have the office of deacon, but He was deaconing. Faithfully serving the Colossians. And not just serving the Colossians, but serving Paul on behalf of the Colossians. The fruit of the Gospel in his life is this life of service that he lived, but the fruit of the Gospel in their lives is the evidence Oh, sorry, is evidence that he, Epaphras, faithfully explained the gospel to them. And that's what they needed, the gospel. And so the first fruit of the gospel in the life of the Colossian church was faith in Christ in response to hearing the gospel explained to them. Have you placed your faith in Christ yet? Have you sort of assumed you've done that? Because you're a good person? You need to place that in Him. The fruit that followed from uh, the faith and hope they had and found in Christ was gratitude, prayer, love, and service. Paul meant to encourage them by this fruit, even as he would remind them that there was more Christ wanted to do in and through them. If Paul and Timothy were to look at us, would they see similar evidence of faith among us as a congregation and as individual Christians? This is not a call to try harder. You've probably heard plenty of those. It's not about that. But it's to see Christ, who displays his supremacy and his sufficiency in producing that fruit in all who trust in him. That's what it's about. That's what Paul wanted them to know, and that's what I want you to know. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that the gospel is sufficient because the one it calls us to believe in is supreme and sufficient. Father, I thank you for the work that you have done in so many of the lives of these people. That if there were people to come and bear testimony, they would bear testimony to how you have made them people of prayer or people filled with gratitude or people who love the saints because their hope is in heaven. And so for those whose faith is in Christ, may they be encouraged. May they be grateful. May they want more. Save us from complacency. 
that we might go further in, deeper in. Father, because you're not ready, you're not done with us until we're perfectly glorified. And so we ask that you would continue to work in such a way that we make progress in our sanctification. And if there are those here this morning who haven't been justified, who haven't been made right with you because they haven't believed Christ, that you would bring conviction to their hearts. That they would recognize where they are. And that they would have a desire to not be there anymore. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.